If you need a Bible, just hold up your hand high, and a Bible will be brought to you, so you can follow along with us as we go through verse by verse, here finishing 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. So, like I said, here's kind of what we've been looking at in this chapter. Um, I'll put up our outline that we've been seeing here. So we've been looking at overall the plan of salvation in chapter 1. And we looked at a few things breaking it down. We've seen the program of salvation in the first five verses that, again, right there in verse 2, Peter just gets right into it as he begins to lay out the fact that we are the elect chosen of God based on his foreknowledge. We're sanctified by the Spirit and we've been, we've been forgiven, cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're seeing this threefold working of the Trinity all taking part in our salvation. And so he's done the work. We've seen the proposition for salvation that we continue on by faith, even in the midst of going through trials, right? We know that we have this living hope in the Lord. That's really what Peter is looking to center us on and to ground us in is this great living hope. We have an inheritance in heaven reserved for you. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It's so good. And then we've seen that this has all been prophesied, the prophecy in salvation that All the Old Testament writers have been writing, looking ahead to these things, not seeing it fully, not seeing the clear picture. But they've been writing, awaiting this, and now we get to be beneficiaries of seeing the the reality now of the salvation, that God is calling us by His grace, saving us, Jew and Gentile, together, making up the church as we come together and see this great salvation. Well, today... Now, starting verse 13, we look at the product by salvation. What does it look like now? Based on all this stuff that Jesus has done for us, based on this great, wonderful salvation that's been given to us freely, what does that mean for us now? What what does that do for us today? What does that look like? Because this salvation should be shaping the way that we live and conduct our lives. Would you agree with that, everybody? Can we start on that premise right now that this great salvation freely given to us should shape the way that we live and conduct ourselves now in this world. Everybody in agreement with that? Great, wonderful. So that's what we want to look at here today. And that's what Peter gets into next because look at verse 13. What Peter says is this in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your minds, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, That word, when we see the word therefore, we need to ask that question. What is it? Therefore. Well, it's there. Peter's tying in everything we've seen in those first 12 verses as he's gone through this great plan of salvation, this program of salvation, the proposition, the prophecy of salvation. He says, therefore, now since all these things have been given to you, here's what it should mean now for you today. This is what it should, it should cause us to begin to do. Therefore, since we've seen all these great things, here's what we need to do. Gird up the loins of your minds. Now, that's kind of a, an interesting wording that's being used there. We don't use that kind of terminology much today. It's been a long time since I've had to tell my wife, hold on a second, honey, I'm just finishing girding up my loins. That's not something that we typically say still today. And in fact, some of the imagery we might conjure up there is not very holy at all. But um, sometimes we think, here's what we oftentimes think of, of girding up our loins, right? Anybody remember that guy? Some of you won't. What was his name? Ed Grimley? Ed Grimley? Is that right? Okay. That's what we think of sometimes. But understand, when Peter uses this terminology, gird up the loins of your minds, he's using an expression that was very, um, uh, something that was very familiar to the Jew. Because they've been called oftentimes to gird up their loins. Now why? How? What was the purpose of that? Because in this day, in Bible times, I mean, men would oftentimes wear this long robe right a long robe that would go down to their ankles their feet or their calves whatever and so if they were ever having to get busy in activity whether it was to you know start working hard or maybe they were needing to move swiftly or maybe they were going into battle they were called to gird up their loins in other words they would pull up their robe you know they would kind of tie it on they'd either cinch it into their belt or they'd wrap it around fat if you are wondering how to do this for you men that may need to gird up your loins, here's a little chart here that shows you how to do it. And this is why, again, going into battle. So you'd wrap it around, literally. I mean, this is not, this is truth right here. This is what they would have to do, all right? Aren't you glad, men, that we're no longer having to do that? 
Because it'd be, in a sense, you'd be walking around like you got a diaper on, in a sense, is what it would kind of look like. It'd be awkward, it'd be weird. So this is what they were called to do. Oftentimes when they were, you know, leaving Egypt, it was like they had to gird up their loins. They'd have to move swiftly as they were leaving whenever they're going into battle. Gird up the loins. So what Peter does is he brings in this imagery here. Now, this, this thing that was very familiar to the Jew of what they would oftentimes have to do in practice physically. Now, Peter says, I want you to do this spiritually when it comes to your minds. I want you to gird up the loins of your minds. Now, it's not to say that our minds have loins, but what happens is that oftentimes we flood ourselves with unholy, unhelpful, unwholesome thinking that weighs us down, that trips us up, just like that robe would trip up people when they were getting involved in, a, in an activity or in a battle or any kind of work. Well, it would trip them up. Sometimes our thinking trips us up and impedes us from moving forward in the things of the Lord. So Peter wants to bring us to this point of saying, I want you to be girding up the loins of your mind here. Don't get tripped up with false thinking or things that are only going to impede you in your growth in Christ. Because listen, let's face it, everybody, we live in a time where where people are just filled with stress, anxiety, worry, and fear. And we allow our minds to race through a number of scenarios that oftentimes in our minds come to a very tragic outcome. And yet the reality is that that's not oftentimes the case. In fact, we were looking at this in, in Philippians on Wednesday night as we've been going through the Bible from 30,000 feet covering whole books at a time. And the whole book of Philippians is about having joy. And it's based on, again, if you remember, if you're here Wednesday, having a right secure mind, a single mind, a spiritual mind. It, it, it's having that, all those things here that we're thinking properly through these things. Because when we start to, dwell upon those thoughts that oftentimes come in. It robs us of joy. It, it, it causes us to regress in our growth of the Lord. We get tripped up. We stumble. And, and what we saw in Wednesday is that, you know, 91, some studies have been done where 91% of the things that people stress over never happen. I know right now you're all going, I know it's that 9% that really freaks me out though. But... You know how much time we spend worrying about things that never come to fruition? And so Peter's saying, I I want you to to guard your mind. To protect yourself. To gird the loins of your mind. Don't let things be just kind of draping down that's going to trip you up. That's going to cause you to stumble. Stop getting tripped up in unnecessary and false truths, in other words. In fact... Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, you grab every thought that comes in, you go, hold on, is this of the Lord? Is this causing me to continue to walk in, in full obedience to the Lord? Is this right with the Lord? Does this match up with his word? If not, I'm going to take it captive. I'm going to hold on and say, no, I'm not going to wrestle with this. I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to think about this because this isn't of the Lord and this isn't helpful. Taking every thought into captivity. And the Bible exhorts us to be filling our minds with what is good and true. As we saw in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 to 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, think on these things, dwell upon those things. Because the things which you learned and received and heard and saw me, these do, and the, notice this, and the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that good? You see, there's a lot of people that haven't experienced the peace of God because they've been so busy playing things through in their minds that's only causing them to fear, to worry, to be full of anxiety. And they're not experiencing the peace of God because we're not taking those thoughts captive to say, hold on a second, I don't need to think this way. I'm a child of God. And God has done incredible amount of things for me in salvation, in a hope of heaven that I have in him. I don't need to worry about these things because this isn't what it's all about. And then Peter goes on to say there in verse 13, 
Not just gird up the loins of your mind, but be sober. Be sober. Now, that's just not in an alcohol, sobriety sort of way, as good as that is to be. But Peter also means to be sober in your thinking. You see, when you're intoxicated, your judgment is impaired. You're not thinking straight. I don't know that firsthand, but that's what I've heard from Randy when he's told me all of those things. But, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. But, you see, we can get, we can get so intoxicated with things that are tied to the world. Things that are, things that are not of God. Things that, again, that aren't, aren't helpful for us. And we can find ourselves making bad choices as we're driven by passions or lusts or ungodly pursuits. But, but Peter says, be sober. In other words, have a right mind. Have a mind that is thinking rightly. Not being intoxicated or pulled in other things. And a mind that is being self-controlled. Because that's another thing that, from what I've heard alcohol can do, is that it can cause you to lose control. Right? And so be sober. Have a controlled mind. A mind that's protected, guarded, that's not under the influence of something else, but rather is under the influence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, bringing everything in line with God's Word, you see. So gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And like I said, one thing that can cause us a lot of fear and worry and thinking falsely is even in regards to our salvation. Do you know how many believers struggle over the fact of, am I really truly saved? Am I really going to make it to heaven? Is, is eternal life really something that's promised to me? You know, there's a lot of believers that can go through these seasons of just struggling over whether they're truly saved. And we can find ourselves questioning if God will really accept me. Is he truly forgiven me for all that I've done? Is that possible? Can he actually love me? But listen to what Peter says. He says, rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest. Do you know how good it is to rest? How many people love resting? Anybody? I love a good rest. I love a good rest. Resting is good. And, 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 and Peter says, I want you to rest on the grace that, that is that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like we've seen here that, you know, Jesus has reserved for us an inheritance, but he's also reserved us for the inheritance. He's keeping us. He's going to bring us there. That he who's begun a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, you see. So we need to rest in these things. It's not something to doubt or question if, can he really save me? Does he really love me? Listen, it's not about you. It's about his grace. It's about his mercy. It's about his free gift of salvation to you. It's not dependent on you. It's not, it's not kind of hinging on what you do or don't do. It's hinging on the fact of, have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you resting in his grace? That's what it says here. Rest your hope fully Upon the grace that is to be brought to you. So we need to rest in these things. To know that everything. that uh, this, this Think about again Peter's audience here. Because he's writing to, to people that are going through great trial. Persecution. Right? They're being driven out of their homes and, and things. They're, they're losing businesses. Family is disowning them. Because of their faith in Christ. These are Christians that are going through great tribulation. But Peter says, don't worry about that. That's not, a, that's not a measure of your status with God. That's not an indicator of who you are in Christ. Because Christ is coming back again. And when he comes back, you're going to see that your salvation is intact in him. That he's already done the work. This would have been a great word of encouragement to these Christians that are, are, are wrestling through these things. Struggling through these things. Listen, don't, don't wrestle with why you're going through what you're going through. Don't wrestle with thoughts of inadequacy or inefficiency of getting to heaven as though you have something to do with it. Don't wrestle over God's love for you 
just rest. Resting is a whole lot more enjoyable than wrestling. Wouldn't you say? Resting is a whole lot more enjoyable than wrestling. And remember, you're resting in a living hope. It's a real hope. It's a guaranteed hope. That's why, why Peter tells us all these things in the beginning here of this chapter. To where he says, now, therefore, because of these things, therefore, now, live this way. Because of the living hope, now rest your hope in the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a guaranteed thing for us. It's based on what Jesus has already done for you. That's our great hope that we have. Regardless of what we encounter in this life, regardless of what we go through, regardless of what our mind might try to play over it in ourselves, we need to guard those thoughts. We need to protect our mind. We need to gird up the loins of our mind and say, I'm a child of God. I'm saved. And when the enemy comes and starts to whisper doubts in your mind and say, God can't really save you. Again, that's why Ephesians 6 tells us we got the armor of God and what? what we had the helmet of what? Salvation. The helmet of salvation to protect our minds to say, you know what, Satan, you might tell me that I'm not worthy. Well, you're right. I'm not. But Christ is worthy and he's given me his righteousness. He's exchanged my sin for his righteousness. So I've got that helmet of salvation to help me to remember and know that I'm saved. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Now, if we're going to have a right mind, a, a controlled mind, Peter instructs us how that's going to be accomplished. It's going to be accomplished through living in holiness and living in harmony. Living in holiness and living in harmony. That's how, how we want to look at the remainder of this chapter here. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Our salvation means that we've been saved from a former life, but it means that we've been saved for a new life or to a new life. See, that new life should be demonstrated by how we live. We should be following God's word and his ways, walking in obedience, as Peter says, as obedient children. And in the Greek, it's more rightly translated as children of obedience. As children of obedience. Now, what do obedient children look like? No, really, I, need, I haven't seen one in a long time. What, what do obedient children look like? It's been, it's been a while. Obedient children, they follow their parents, don't they? They, they follow the instructions of their parents. They eventually, yeah, we, we're, we're praying for them still. We are. But, but they follow the instructions of their parents. They, they do what their parents ask. That's, that's what an obedient children, obedient child ultimately looks like, right? See, here's the thing is, is what Peter lays out. We used to do what we wanted, right? We used to follow our way. We used to go our way. Don't, he, that's why he says, don't conform yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. We didn't know any better. We were kind of like blinded. We're, we're, as Ephesians 2 tells us, we were just kind of walking according to the course of this world. We're just like in this stream of, of sin and chaos and just falling along ignorantly in a sense. But then God, who is rich in mercy, reached down and made us alive, saved us. And he began to open our eyes to the realities of life that he has for us now in him. So we once were going our way as disobedient children, but now Christ has made us alive. He's given us life in him. He saved us. He's pulled us out of that stream of sin to give us now life in him where we will follow him as children of obedience, as obedient children. So we once did in ignorance, but now we've been called out of that, you see. So instead of conforming ourselves to the futility of this world and to our former lust, which we thought this is what's going to bring us gratification or satisfaction, right? We thought, this is what's going to make me happy. God says, no, you want to be happy? You go my way. You follow my way. You want to experience joy in life, satisfaction? Then it's going to be found in life that I have for you because he's the creator of life. He's the giver of life. And if life is going to be enjoyed, it's got to be enjoyed his way. He knows what it takes. So we follow his way now. And that becomes the process now 
of being holy. Holy in the Greek is that Greek word hagios. And, and it's the same, it, the same word is where we get that word sanctification from. In verse 2, remember the sanctification in the Holy Spirit. And so holy essentially means to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct, set apart. Now, it, it ultimately means to be holy is that we're being set apart from the things of this world that we once followed after, right? We're in that stream, conducting ourselves in ignorance according to the course of this world. That's where we once were, but now we go, wait a second, God's made me alive. I'm, I'm said I've, I've experienced new life by being born again. So we set apart ourselves from those things, but we also set ourselves apart to God, to the things of God, to going His way. That's what it means to be holy. I was saying, I was going this way, but now I'm going to follow His way. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be different. I'm not going to follow the course of this world. I'm going to go His way. I'm going to be different than the world. I'm going to be distinct. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. I'm going to be linked to him, attached to him, abiding in him. I'm going to set myself apart unto him. And, and when we do, that's going to look radically different than, than most of the lives in this world. When we say, I'm not going to live for my own pleasure. I'm not going to live a life of sin. Guess what? That's going to be a life that's going to be very distinct from the majority of the public in this world. It, it can't help but to be. You're not being distinct because, see, sometimes we think holiness is like kind of weird. It's like, ooh, look at that person. They're so holy. And they're just so weird. It's like out of touch. We think sometimes of holiness like that. And it, and it sometimes, at least it did for me a lot of times, I'm like, I don't know if I want to be holy because I want to be deemed as some weirdo freak, right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just the general distinction that's made when we follow God. It's going to be so radically different than the world. But it's going to be something that the world's going to look at and go, man, how does that person walk in such joy, in peace, in blessing in the midst of trial, in the midst of trouble? How is there that peace and hope that they have? That's, that's the work of the Lord, you see. That's what it looks like to be holy, now, here's the amazing thing. As Peter indicates there for us, right there in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So catch this now, everybody. God is holy. He's really the embodiment of holiness. God is so completely distinct and different than anything in the world. More so than we could ever be. God is holy. And, and in that being holy, he's set apart from the world, right? But what's amazing is that in God being set apart, he doesn't separate himself completely from us. As we oftentimes think, God is holy. Oh my goodness, I can never be really in relationship with God. No, what does God do? He invites us in to his holiness. He says, come and be holy, for I am holy. Come and set yourself apart from those things and be set apart unto me. He invites us in to be partakers of his holiness. He doesn't push us aside and say, oh, guys, hold on, no. There's got to be a barrier here because I'm holy and you guys are so not. So there's got to be a bit of a barrier here because I'm distinct, I'm different. I'm set apart, I'm holy. No, he says, be holy. Because I'm holy. And I want you, as you walk in holiness, to enjoy this beautiful fellowship and relationship with me all the more. That, that blows my mind. To think that God invites us in. To enjoy that and partake of that with him. See, sometimes we think and we err in thinking that holiness is like heaviness. It's like a burden. It's like, oh man, to be holy means I just can't enjoy life any longer. Right? I can't do that. I can't do that because I got to be holy. And we think holiness is walking around in some altered spiritual state. Like we're just so completely, you know, um, not even aware of our surroundings because we're just so holy. Sometimes we think holiness is this, again, is this kind of 
weird state, this, this super spiritual place that we can only dream of, of attaining. But holiness is not heaviness. It's, it's truly the way to, to happiness. Because it's partaking, as I said, the very, in the very nature of God. And his life is the life to be enjoyed. And he's the one through his spirit that's transforming us into his image and making us holy. As we saw there in verse 2. By sanctification of the spirit. Sometimes this even comes through discipline. But God's purpose in it, even in the trials that these Christians were experiencing, is meant to bring us into a deeper walk of holiness and blessing look at what hebrews 12 verse 10 says for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seen best in them the author of hebrews is talking about parents in their relationship with children they discipline them right but he disciplines us for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness see god disciplines us not to hurt us not to beat us up but to bring us on track with who he is and to be partakers of his holiness. When we get outside of that, when we start going and drifting our way or the world's way, he comes on in discipline because he loves us. And he says, man, that's not the way to joy or happiness. That's not the way to blessing. Man, get back on track with me and following me to be partakers of my holiness. He disciplines us for our profit, it tells us in Hebrews 12. So, keep your mind girded up. Think soberly. Be holy. Set yourself apart from the lusts of this world and be set apart unto God because it's the joyous, blessed, peaceful life that we live when we walk in holiness as he is holy. And notice in verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves so at the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, if you are a child of God, and I hope you all are today, that you look to God as your father, then Peter says, conduct yourselves throughout your time in this world in what? In fear. Why? Because one day, you're not going to be in this world. And in that day, you're going to stand before our Father, who is also a judge, and he's going to determine where you spend eternity. So live this life with fear. Now, that's not necessarily a, a fear of God in a sense that you're just constantly worried or afraid, but it's more so a fear of what life without God would be like. Because he alone has the power of eternal life, right? Our living for him is not a life of fear, but rather a life of understanding what the alternative would be without him, and it's not a good alternative. And so I'm thankful for what I have in him, and I don't want to mess that up. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to exchange that for anything that would be inferior. I want to keep on track with God. And, and I live with that reverence and fear of him because I know there's no other option for life. The blessed life now and life eternal. It's found in him. I want to hold on to that dearly. I want to live with that reverence and fear. But it's balanced with the reality that I'm, I'm chosen in him. He's keeping me and protecting me for the life to come as we've seen already in the beginning of this chapter. See, what scripture teaches is this. Man must reverence God and hold God in the highest esteem and honor. Only if man reverences God will he worship and serve God. Therefore, the fear that God wants man to have is a fear of reverence and awe, a fear that will stir man to love God with the deepest of emotions, with a true honor and esteem. But if man fails to reverence and love God, then he must fear the judgment and wrath of God. Why? Because man will have to bear the judgment of God. Therefore, fear is man's only hope. It is one of the forces that can drive him to cry out for the mercy of God. It's one of those forces that keep us there, holding on to God, abiding in Him, knowing that, again, there's no other option. Life is found in Him alone. And I love this language that Peter uses here in these verses. It's, it's wonderful pilgrim language. Because notice he says there, 
conduct yourselves, um, or let's see here. Yeah, conduct yourselves throughout the time you stay here in fear. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here. Throughout the time of your stay. That's what he say to a tourist or to a vacationer. Enjoy your stay. Thank you for coming. Enjoy your stay. That is not something that I hear when I go walking home or into my house at the end of the day. I don't hear my kids saying, well, hello, Father, welcome. Enjoy your stay. I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you like already got me lined up for a home there? My mind is going, I understand, but I'm not ready to be dismissed just yet. That's not something you hear. It's my home. I'm not going anywhere. But when you're on vacation, when you're checking into someplace temporarily, enjoy your stay, right? This is what Peter says. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay. You see, he's saying, guys, it's just for a little while. The things that you're encountering in this world, it's just for a little while. It's temporal. There's something far greater awaiting you that's coming to you. That's why he says, rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because there's coming a time when we're going to see Jesus face to face. And we're going to be with him for all of eternity. That's our real home. That's our real hope. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're living for. It's not for the things of this world. Because we're just conducting ourselves for a time throughout our stay here. I love that. And the more that we're having a heart for God, looking to Him, longing for Him, the more that we're going to be desiring desiring to be holy and set apart for Him. And and holiness becomes that which is is perfected in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, Therefore having these promises, beloved, and we see many of them in 1 Peter already, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Keep living set apart for the Lord. Now, if fear is not a great motivator for you to holy living, Peter gives us another option that should be a little kickstart for holy living. And it's this, that you've been bought with a price. Do you see what we read there in, in verse, um, verse 18? Knowing that you are not redeemed, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, this is something far greater and more valuable than even gold and silver, Peter says. Those things are corruptible. They, lose, they can lose their value. Or they can get lost. But... We've been redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus. He was the perfect, spotless, without blemish sacrifice for us. Now, why did it take his blood to redeem us? Well, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So the shed blood of Jesus is significant to reveal that he fully died. That a life was given up. Blood was shed. A life was sacrificed so that that penalty of sin could be met. That the the wages of sin could be paid for. It's death. And Jesus came as the only perfect, sinless, spotless, without blemish, one fully God, yet fully man. Able to identify with us, but perfect enough to be that sacrifice that would cleanse us, forgive us. And give us new life in him. So Jesus died so that we might live. But he didn't die so we could just live as we wanted. Or, or so that we could just keep living in our sin. He came to deliver us out of that. So we could live holy lives set apart to God. That word redeem is so important. Especially in, in biblical language. Because many slaves would be purchased and redeemed. But sometimes... A slave could be purchased to continue on being a slave. But the idea here of Jesus redeeming us was to be purchased, to be set free. To be brought out of being a slave and to experience the the freedom and the liberty in Christ now. 
We've been set free. We've been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. He came to deliver us out of this life of slavery because of sin and, and set us free so that we could live these lives now freely to be set apart for him. Are we doing so? Are we squandering these lives and trampling on this precious sacrifice of Jesus? See, when I think of what Jesus had to go through to save me and set me free from my sin, to live a holy life is the least I could do. It's not hard. It's not burdensome. It's a blessing. But, but sometimes we want to keep ownership of our lives so much that we hold on. We don't want to relinquish control. But Jesus not only made us, we're already his, but he bought us. It reminds me of that story of a, a young boy who had spent all of his money gathering up materials to make a boat. He was so excited to make this boat. And when he finally got all complete, he, he put that to sail on the lake and suddenly a wind kicked in and it just took that boat and it just went right across the lake to where this boy couldn't retrieve it any longer. He was so sad that he lost this precious boat that he had made. Well, one day he's out walking in the town and he noticed in the pawn shop his boat sitting there for sale. And he goes walking in, this is my boat. And he grabs it and he's ready to walk out the store and the owner says, wait a second, you gotta buy that. And the little boy said, wait a second, I made this boat. And the owner said, but I had to purchase that boat, I had to buy that. And if you want to take it home with you, you need to purchase it. So the little boy went home and he began to continue work to raise up enough money to buy that. Finally had enough money. Goes back to that store and he buys that boat. And he walks out of the store and he's so excited. He says, now you're doubly mine because not only did I make you, but now I've purchased you. You're doubly mine. That's exactly what God has done for us. He's made us. He deserves everything already. But because of sin, we went astray. But then he purchased us. We're doubly his. And he purchased us with a value or with a cost that you can't put a price on. You see, the value of something is, is really indicated by the cost it took for them or to, re, or to have that. And this was something more costly than, than gold or silver. How many people would like just a nice bag full of, of gold or silver? We'd all be like, man, yes, I'll take it. But Peter says, this is with the precious blood of Christ, something far greater than gold or silver. In other words, my friends, it, listen, we live in a culture where people struggle over their worth, over their value. We live in a time where people are constantly wrestling over their, their self-worth, their, their value, their, their self-esteem, in a sense. Thinking they're nothing. But stop and realize that Christ gave up his life for you. God was willing. He loved you so much that he was willing to send the most valuable thing he could, his son. And his son gave up the most valuable thing he could, his blood to redeem you, to forgive you, to set you free, that you might have a relationship with him. You are of greater value and worth than any material wealth that this world could throw at you. It's even bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Our worth is not in ourselves or what we can do. It's in what God has already done for you. And when I think of what Jesus had to go through to save me and set me free, man, I want to live my life all the more for him. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. And it's a blessing to do so. This is not an obligation. This is not a duty. This is an honor for what he's done for me. And it's the way that God ensures that joy and happiness in our lives. And notice... He indeed, in verse 20, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in his last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, 
the work that Jesus did was not some afterthought. This was not some kind of, you know, reaction that God had to make on the spur of the moment. His death was not some accident or plan of man. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world to die for your sin and mine. Some might think that, you know, at the fall of Adam and Eve, that God had to go into some great kind of damage control. Oh my goodness, they've really blown it. They've really messed everything up. What are we going to do? Okay, let's see here. What, let's devise some kind. This was not an act. God had already had this plan in mind. It was foreordained before the foundation of the world that his son would come and be the redeemer of all. That would provide life for all. This was not some afterthought. This was not some reaction to something that took God by surprise. This has already been planned out. And understand this. May this bring hope to you. Your mistakes and your sin does not surprise God. He knew that it happened. Remember, that's that, that's that foreknowledge of God that we saw in verse 2. He knows. He understands. But he's put a plan in mind already, predetermined to provide that rescue plan for you. When you mess, mess up, when you, when you sin, when you falter... Don't run from God thinking, oh, how am I ever going to face him? It's not like God is sitting there in heaven going, oh my goodness, what is happening? Oh my goodness, he's like looking over like, are they, are they fixed it yet? Oh my, I can't believe they're doing this. God's not shocked. Nothing you do is going to surprise God. He knew that you were going to be a big failure. He already knew. So we'll just close on that note. I think it's time to <laughs> worship here. No, I'm just kidding. Listen. We surprise ourselves sometimes because I think we think that we're better than we are. And we get shocked and we, we think, how am I going to go to God? God's saying, just come to me. I knew this was already going to happen. And I've already provided a plan for forgiveness. But we don't run to God to be Resaved, but we come to God to confess our sin so that our fellowship with Him is restored. But He's already put in action the plan to redeem you, to save you, to forgive you. And it's been planned out before you ever sinned. And He came at that perfect time, at that fulfilled time, right? Manifesting these last times for you, at the right time, God had it all worked out at just the exact perfect time that Christ would come into the world to redeem us. To go to the cross. And he was raised back to life. Never to die again. That's the very heart of the gospel. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. So because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Our hope is a substantial. Secured hope. So verse 22 says. Since you have purified your souls. In obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. See, when we follow God's word in obedience, it produces a, a purifying work. Jesus said as much, John fifteen three, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So it cleanses us, it sanctifies us, it sets us apart. And this purifying work is meant to give us the ability now to do what? To love one another. Isn't that great? And to love one another fervently. Fervently with, with a great passion, desire, and truth and honesty. We can't do this without a pure heart. We need to be seeing sin have its way less and less because the root of sin is self. It really centers it all on us. And if I'm focused on self, I'm not going to be walking in love as I should. That's why I need to be born again. Because it's not in my nature to think of others. It's not in your nature to put others ahead of you. And to love one another. That's not in our nature. So we need to be born again. But notice this. We're not born again of corruptible seed, but incorruptible and through the word of God. This is powerful. This is amazing. The word of God comes in and it speaks the gospel that message of salvation to us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing 
through the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And, and so we receive the word. It, it strengthens us. It, it creates that, it, it creates, it brings that gospel to us so that we can be born again. And it's not a credible seed. Now, this is amazing because you, you look at a little seed, right? A seed, as small as it is, has everything in it, all that DNA, all that scientific stuff that I can't even begin to explain properly to all of you here today. But it's got everything in it it needs to create life and to bring something vastly different than what that seed started out as. And so the Word of God, remember Jesus used the Word of God in the parable of the soils. The parable of the sower, right? That seed that went out. And that seed rested on different kinds of soils. And when it was planted in that right soil, it produced 30, 60, 100 fold. But Jesus says that seed is the word of God. And so within the word of God, it is a living word that has everything in it right here to produce in us something far greater than comes just about naturally. That's why we need to be born again. So there might be those that say, oh man, you know, I'm just not a very outgoing person. I'm just not a very loving person. It's just not in me to do that. Well, that's right. On your, on your own, in yourself, it's not. But when we're born again, you're given a new nature. You're given everything you need to that seed of the word of God that's incorruptible. You're given everything you need to produce in you these very things. To walk in holiness, to walk in harmony, to love one another and to love one another fervently. To carry out these very things that God has called us to. And it's the word of God that shows us to love God and love others. John 15 verse 12 says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And so Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 6 to 8, to give a comparison between nature and the immutability of God's word. Look at what he says in verse 24. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. You know, I can put my trust or my confidence in a lot of things, but they can all be passing fads. They don't last. What is in today is out tomorrow. I, I, I can't keep up. But the word of God lasts forever. It's what we can put our trust and confidence in. It's what we need to be allowing into our lives to produce in us these very things that God has called us to. And you be born again. And a person is born again through the word of God going out. Have you allowed the word of God to come in? Like that seed that gets planted on good soil. And to produce that fruitfulness in your life. Because that's what it'll do. This living word of God that's active, that will not return void. Have you allowed this word to penetrate into your heart? And to produce that new life, that new nature that God has for us. That we can carry out this life of holiness, this life of harmony, as we love one another fervently with this new nature. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And we're going to just close with time of worship. We have something so dependable in the word of God. And it's packed full of promises and exhortations that we need to Hold on to confidently. Listen, when times are rough or, or you're wondering these things are a little outdated, you can trust God's word here because it stands the test of time and it'll keep on enduring forever. That's the living hope that we have. And so I pray that you are receiving that, that you're putting these things into practice, that we're allowing the spirit in, that sanctification of the spirit setting us apart. Allowing the living word to continue on to change us and to give us that new nature. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just look to you here today and we're, we're thankful, God, for this work that you've done, Lord. 
for this living hope we have in you. But Lord, because you've done all these things now, God, you, you've called us to a life that's different. You've called us to a life of holiness. And yet, that's not something you put on us to burden us, to drag us down. It's, it's the way that you ensure us walking in joy and blessing and peace. What a great thing it is when we see ourselves being set apart to you and receiving this holiness that you've called us to, that you yourself are. And we allow this living word of God to begin to penetrate in our hearts and, and cause there to be that born again new nature at work. Lord, what a blessing it is to see this activated and at work where we're walking in love, walking with hope, living out this peace in this world. God, for those here today that don't know that, that haven't been experiencing these things, I pray that you would reveal, Lord, the fact that you have come to this world to save them. It's that work they can't do for themselves. It's what you do for them. And I pray that they'll put their trust in you. They'll call out to you and say, Jesus, save me, forgive me my sin. I want to live set apart to you and experience this blessed life that you have for us now. And Lord, lead us as believers now, lead us on into further holiness, being set apart to you, Lord, living a distinct life as walking in holiness and harmony, but Lord, being a blessing one to another and a blessing to this world. Because this world is without hope and we've got that hope. So may we show that one to another. So we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and let's just close in a song as we worship the Lord and wait on Him. And our, our prayer teams will be available in the front to pray with you now while we sing and after the service. And so if you need prayer today, we'd love to pray with you.